0: Who exactly wages war on whom? Are international conflicts the manifestation of conflicts and values between people in one nation and another? Or are they fought by governments, not just upon the populations of other countries, but on their own people? I mentioned in one of our other podcasts the work of Anthony Sutton, who documented American and Western involvement in building up the Soviet Union. The USA fought a war against Soviet communism, but almost all the technologies the Soviets used to fight the war was American. The Bolsheviks took loans from American financiers and they paid them off with gold coins which they seized from the Tsar's treasuries. They took people's farm produce and they exported it to buy modern machines from European countries. And then in 1922, when their people were starving because they'd sent all the food away, Herbert Hoover, who was then the Secretary of Commerce, sent them famine relief, which was funded by the US taxpayer. Sounds brutal, but if they hadn't sent the aid, the Soviet Union would have probably collapsed and instead We fought a multi-decade Cold War and expended countless resources that could have been spent making the world safe and prosperous. The communists rewarded American financiers like John D. Rockefeller by giving standard oil access to Soviet oil fields. Now, this is an interesting thing. Why was the world's richest capitalist funding an ideology that said that people like him were evil? Now, outside of libertarian circles john d rockefeller tends to get branded as a robber baron a crony capitalist people don't have a good view of people getting very rich and he was the world's first billionaire but amongst conservatives and in the libertarian movement there's been an effort to clear his name you've got people like burt folsom writing books like the myth of the robber barons saying that most of his gains were not ill-gotten that he Save the Whale, he significantly improved living standards by the inventions that he made under Standard Oil. Then there's other people. James Corbett of the Corbett Report, who's convinced that he was involved in some kind of global conspiracy. That seems to be the view of Sutton as well. FDR continued to supply the Soviets with taxpayer-funded assistance. In 1944, Stalin noted that two-thirds of Soviet heavy industry had been built with US help. By the 1960s, the Soviet Union was $11 billion in debt to the USA, which they refused to pay. And when asked to pay back just $300 million of that, they refused to pay that back too, although they reportedly had $9 billion worth of gold in their treasury if not for american taxpayer assistance to the soviet union the soviet union would have been bankrupt in 1972 american loans were used to assist the soviets in financing food purchases again after a poor harvest anyone who understands austrian economics knows that communism is a system which can't create wealth there's no way to calculate who should get what when and why without the feedback mechanism of prices and profits and loss. The Soviet threat was built entirely by American technology and government and European technology and government. And don't think it stops with Stalin either. Germany has no oil reserves. The technology Hitler used to synthesize fuel from coal was also developed by Standard Oil and exported to Germany by America. Germany couldn't have gone to war in 1939 without tetraethyl which is needed to raise the octane value of aviation gasoline. It was developed in labs in the USA and transferred to the Germans. Standard Oil invented the hydrogenation idea to raise the quality of gasoline for aviation purposes and transferred it from America to Germany. American ITT operated in Germany to make fighter aeroplanes for the Nazis. Standard Oil financed the gasoline industry in Germany that was needed to fight World War II against America. What I'm including today is my appearance from last year with Kyle Anzalone. Foreign Policy Focus, episode 136 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to Foreign Policy Focus. This is episode 199, and I am the show's host, Kyle. Joining me on today's show is a special guest, uh, all the way from Scotland, Anthony Samaroff. Anthony, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Kyle, for having me on Foreign Policy Focus. I love what you're doing. You're putting out really great resources for anyone who knows people who are still into the foreign intervention stuff. You can really arm them with facts you have great guests and you're so knowledgeable yourself.
1: I learned from your show thank you so much for that and uh you have a couple great podcasts yourself. you're the host of the Scottish Liberty podcast and the be yourself and love it uh show. you're also the author of Procrastination Annihilation, which you could get for free at be yourself and love it uh, dot com slash uh four slash do it right
2: yeah, be yourself and love com forward slash do it. So if you want to end the war within over trying to get yourselves to do your tasks, uh, procrastination annihilation is my self-help book and uh, I'm very proud to have completed that. So definitely uh, advise people to get it. Of course, we're here to talk politics today and I'm really excited to have the opportunity to do
1: that with you. So moving on, you know, to the topic here we're t- talking about today, which of course is foreign policy. uh You had an episode of your podcast, War on Syria is War on Freedom, not War on Terror. And that, you know, show kind of prompted me to have you on my show just because I think you have a lot of interesting points in, in that show. And I kind of want, you know, flesh some of that out on this show and get into some new stuff and, and your thoughts on war. Um You know, while I am a libertarian, I really don't talk libertarian philosophy Mm -hmm. all that much on the show. And so, as I near episode 200, uh, let's go ahead and cover kind of that point, which is how does the libertarian philosophy apply to foreign policy and interventionism?
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I was really interested in putting that download out because it was more what I wanted to talk about was the relationship between our freedom at home, our civil liberties, and our foreign policy. It's like this idea of being struck by your own sword, so to speak. And sometimes we hear about the blowback of interfering in the Middle East. And yeah, I mean, some of us are concerned that radical Islam is a non-libertarian philosophy, and we might be worried about that. But the greatest threat to our freedom is and has always been our own government. And as libertarians, we know this very well. I mean, I'm sure there's uh, plenty of left-wingers that get a lot out of your show and they're not so much for economic freedom. In fact, they think that economic freedom is economic slavery. But another thing that we have in common with many of our friends in the left, at least we used to, uh, I'm not sure if the new, the new generation of leftists is very strong on civil liberties, but throughout history, um, the left was associated with the protection of civil liberties, especially under right-wing governments like thatcher here and reagan they were meant to be standing up for things like um the right of a prisoner to challenge the terms of their imprisonment uh to get a fair trial a trial by a jury the presumption of innocence until proven guilty being against the idea of detainment without trial which throughout my life you know the labor party which was here in britain uh, after 9/11, kept on trying to increase the amount of time they could detain terrorist suspects without trial. Of course, if you were detained for long enough, you confess to doing just about anything, whether you did it or not. These civil the right not to be tried again for the same charge, followed by a legit, following a legitimate acquittal, I should say. Um, not to have to identify yourself to police officers. Now we have stop and search here in the UK. I don't know about you, but the police can stop you and search to see if you're carrying an, a weapon, including a knife. Carrying a knife is illegal here. You can be um, charged for that. I don't know what the the um, state of that is in the U.S. Um, I'm not really sure how, how the left, of course, in the U.S. feel about carrying a weapon. But just to give examples... Things like the police requiring a warrant to search your house, the government needing to go through the courts to get the right to spy on you, to keep your details, the government being answerable to you so that if they hold information on you, you should be able to know what that is. And um, freedom of the press, of course, uh, freedom of speech, the idea that the government should be limited under the law, that's quite a really important American ideal enshrined in your constitution. And, you know, even stuff like the fact that we don't torture the left was at the forefront of advocating for that. And there's a point to that. I mean, the point is that we don't become, you know, Nietzsche said, beware when you fight monsters lest you become one. And we don't want to become monsters when we fight monsters by ending up torturing people and um uh, detaining them without trial and things like that. That's... um that that's not the road that we want to go down as human as as human beings we want to retain the moral high ground, so to speak and what I kind of wanted to know is that throughout history, people have accepted certain suspensions of these freedoms in a time of war. We allowed that for greater security and for greater secrecy as well for the government so that uh, foreign enemies couldn't get on, get in on our secrets and find out what we're going to do, find out when we're going to bomb and who and where. Um, and so there was sometimes like suspension of due process and curtailments of free speech and skipping out on ordinary demo- democratic processes, elections, checks and balances. Um, you could detain enemy combatants indefinitely. And there's lots of other powers which we should consider tyrannical in a time that's not an emergency. And that was accepted as as admissible or at least the case was put forward that these rights needed to be suspended. And you could even argue that they make sense in a time when we're under threat. Now here's the trouble we're always at war. We are always at war. How long I mean the war on terror is should be celebrating its 17th birthday this year. Uh, before that, not long before that, we were embroiled in a Cold War. Was that, um, you know, and the, we've got the Israel-Palestine conflict, which could go on forever. So we've always seen these wars that, that that could go on forever. I mean, after the Cold War, we... I'm sorry, to talk. I hope you don't mind me talking so long. No, 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 this this
1: is great. I I think you're doing a good job of, you know, kind of clarifying, like, these are, like, all the impacts of the wars, and it does, Mm -hmm. you know, it could feel like you're going on forever, but that's because, like, all of these things are, you know, either one step away or two steps away from the war. Because we had the war, then we have blowback at home, that's terrorism, then we have weapons control, and and now they're stopping frisk, and now they're torturing people. And so... You know, th- this is something else I want to get into is, you know, from a libertarian perspective, if you're at war, you know, does that mean that you could completely take the gloves off? Can you torture, you know, people who are know, maybe not like an infant, but let's say, it's you know, 16 year old boy, can you torture him? You know, can you drop bombs on hospitals because you think there's a terrorist in the basement? Could you, mm. know, can you bomb a wedding because maybe the groom's uncle is a supporter of Al Qaeda? I mean, what? What would you know? Are there limits in the libertarian philosophy? Was this?
2: Thank you for asking me that. It's very interesting because if you go over to the Ayn Rand Institute now, I'm a huge Ayn Rand enthusiast. I think she was really brilliant. I love her arguments for capitalism. I love her arguments for ethics, for the liberty, um, for for liberty and things like that. And, um, she's got a very penetrating mind and she was great at taking apart bad arguments. But they have a philosophy, which is, if you're at war, the gloves come off. Just go in, flatten them, destroy their infrastructure, do whatever it takes to, he- to not only win a decisive victory, but completely demoralize your opponent so that everyone knows not to mess with you. And I think that is a extraordinarily collectivist view. If you really understand libertarianism, and I know that the objectivists don't say they're libertarians, so they've got a right to do that, to deviate. But I do think you should, you know, I think we should hold ourselves to higher standards, first of all. And second of all, anything you mention would be considered a crime if an individual does it. So we're all individuals. And really, we do live in a status paradigm. So if you're a minarchist, you should be saying, well, The government is there to protect you from foreign invaders, yes. Not to intervene abroad, but if you're under threat to go in and win a decisive victory, um, for sure. But at the same time, there's only individuals. There are no collectives. So what are you going to do killing a whole bunch of civilians? I mean, I believe in the first Gulf War, uh, something like 100,000 civilians were killed. We bombed uh, infrastructure, Power plants, because we bombed power plants... I, I hate that, we. As I said, there's only individuals. Those people, those government officials commanded the military to, to bomb power plants. The lights went off in hospitals and people died in them. People say that the depleted uranium shells that were used um, created such a increase in radiation there that there's birth defects to this day because of them. So that I think... You're going, What you're doing is you're creating a situation where there's more people in the world that hate you, and in a time where the biggest threat to our lives is not actually by a foreign invader, but by things like if it's going to be a for, if it's going to be a threat of violence from uh antagonistic power, it's likely to be in the form of terrorism or you know some sort of cyber hacking and and things like that. Um, th- the fact that other countries do not have the military might to destroy us is really not of a concern the fact that they can maybe find a way of getting somewhere where they can strap a bomb to themselves and blow up civilians is more of a concern so from a completely selfish point of view you don't want to be creating people that hate you but anyone with um, a moral conscience should care if some random farmer from nowhere has a bomb fall on their house, and his children die, and he has to bury his wife because someone in our government decided that we don't like the administration in that country. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think you sh- I think if you're coaxed into war, you should try. And back to the point of individuals, no one's stopping anyone from. Or at least no one should be stopping anyone from flying over to Syria and fight, uh, grabbing a gun and fighting on whatever side they want to. But as libertarians, we shouldn't be advocating for the government to have the right to force people at gunpoint through the tax system to pay for these interventions.
1: Right, and you know, I, I take your point. Like I, I'm, you know, not a huge fan of Iran, but I've read her work, and I think she makes a lot of brilliant points, as you say. But I think sometimes she was a little bit rigid in her thinking. And so Mm -hmm. I'm sure what she imagined the foreign policy situation, it was probably, you know, in either the Cold War sense or the World War II sense. Mm -hmm. However, you know, the modern conflict, if we look at how we got in Afghanistan, well, there's 400 al-Qaeda guys hiding out in the uh, mountains of southern Afghanistan. And then suddenly now we're at war with the entire population of the country. amazing. Right. And so if you look at, the fact that every other person in Afghanistan was just an individual, not at war with the United States in any way, other than people who weren't even from Afghanistan, just a group of people hiding out in mm. the mountains there and and now we're at war with the entire country. How well, can you, know, argue in any way the morality when a bomb falls on a hospital or something like that? You know, all of this has to be considered an aggressive war and, yeah. and a part of war crimes. It's
2: really, I really appreciate that clarification about Ayn Rand. And she was very, um even though I agree with you, she could be quite rigid in her thinking. She thought through things thoroughly. So when she was asked whether the, what she thought of the Vietnam War, she said she couldn't even say if she was for it or against it because both positions were absurd. The war was, a, the fact that the war was started was absurd, but the reasons that it was being fought for in the Randis philosophy were absurd because in her philosophy you any free country has the right to invade an unfree country to free them. however, they shouldn't do it because the every country should be following uh, pre- protecting the self rational self interest of their own people so um it wasn't in this it, this she saw as an altruistic war. At least it was sold on altruistic grounds to free the people of Vietnam, and that was not the correct motive for war. The mo- the correct motive for war was to um, protect your liberty from from someone who might threaten it. So uh, she didn't. She said she couldn't even say if she was for it or against it. She was against it being started, but because it had been started, she thought America should go in and win a decisive victory as quickly and um, as possible just do whatever it took to win a clear and decisive victory now that is the that is the cold way of looking at it i suppose and there is a certain rationality towards it because war isn't nice it's a mess which is why we should be reluctant to go to war and um, there was something else you said that i wanted to pick up on which was very brilliant uh, about the fact that we end up going to war with the whole country and the randist view at least as I've heard those people at the Ayn Rand Institute explain it, the people are somewhat responsible for the kind of government they have, even if they're in a dictatorship. That's what um Yaron Brooks said some years ago, which is a real shame to me because I think he's wonderful on economics and, and other issues. Um, now, here's the thing. Imagine, let's take that principle and apply it to ourselves. Imagine an alien race came out of, space and they were intergalactic or interplanetary fearing free marketeers they had a minarchist government that only fulfilled the rules that uh, minarchist libertarians believed they did and they had uh, 99 percent economic freedom and that's how they invented all the technology and they came down to earth and they saw america the greatest power in the world and they said wow their government is fleecing them for so much of their income. They run a welfare state which traps the poor in poverty. They lock people up for victimless crimes like smoking marijuana. They are a dictatorship compared to us. So what we're going to do is we're going to go in and we're going to kill 10 to 33% of the population of America and say, people of the earth. We have come to free you from the tyranny that is your government. And, um, you know, would, would we think that that was somehow acceptable? Um, and that's what it's like going to a third world country and bombing the crap out of them. And, um, you know, Afghanistan, I believe, was the poorest country or one of the poorest countries in the world when we bombed them. What the hell are we doing? You know, it's horrible. It's And, and just think... It's of the other opportunity cost. That's all money that wasn't spent on furthering our progress at home. That wasn't taxpayers putting people in jobs and all the infrastructure and everything that was destroyed. Now we need to spend all sorts of resources as a species to restore it to its original condition, not to mention what cannot be replaced, which is the mental health, the trauma that this has
1: caused. Right. And I think the opportunity costs are, are so important. I mean, even, you know, setting aside that kind of stuff, just imagine, you know, the, the all the engineers who are right now putting all their capital into building weapons. Uh, You know, what all these nuclear engineers who have spent, you know, their lives building bombs that are, could only destroy the entire human race. Imagine if rather than building that, they're trying to build different uh, nuclear energy and, and improve the technology there. How much more wealthy, every single human being on this earth would be if if that were the case. And I I don't know how insanely wealthy Americans would be right now. I'm guessing our video quality would be a whole lot better, yeah. and I'd probably be sitting in a more comfortable chair. You know, just because uh, we're talking about like 5.6 trillion dollars, I think at this point the Americans wow. have spent on the war is uh, since 2001. How much would that
2: enrich people's lives? and um, and you know. In George Orwell's 1984, he says the purpose of war is the destruction of human labor without which a class society cannot continue to exist. Now, here's my ANCAP conspiracy theory. You can't let people become too rich because if the people at the bottom become too wealthy, they will start doing what middle class people do the first thing is they'll take their kids out of public school and put them in better private schools. So that reduces the need for the state to provide education. Then they get better health insurance. I mean, here in the UK, we have socialized health care. And one of the first things that people say, if you're an anarchist or a libertarian, is how will people get health care without the government? So People, poor people at the bottom, the poorest people in society, more and more can provide for their own health care, their own health insurance. That removes the role of the state. Then because there's less poverty, there's also less crime. So you need less police officers and administrators for the police force. That reduces the role of the state. And you no longer have a permanent underclass that don't have career options, uh, many of whom are all too willing to go into the military. For a comparatively impressive salary, so that reduces the war, uh, the role for the state, and we can fight um, abroad so readily. The the thing is, the state relies on crises and a lack in order to sustain its role for providing these things to the have-nots. So six trillion—that's that's the people of America six trillion richer. That's a pretty large sum of money to go around $300 million. Uh, Yeah, you, Yeah, I, yeah. I think this million. is
1: a, a really good insight. And, and one of the questions I always get whenever I'm talking about some insane foreign policy the United States is doing in the Middle East, and people say, why would we possibly do that? This obviously will not be a victory for America, will not lead in a positive direction. And so I think kind of what you highlighted on there is that Maybe that's not the point.
2: Oh, thank you. I appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah, again, conspiracy theory time. Um, If you believe that the war is meant to be won, it looks incomprehensible to you that people would still be advocating for another intervention in the Middle East. However, and I'm not saying that everyone in the government is not trying to win the war, but maybe the orchestrators of the war see things differently. In 1984, war was used by the ruling class to oppress their own people by keeping their eyes pointed overseas instead of at their own exploiters and rulers. And the war was meant to go on forever because one country would be at war with another country and then they'd switch sides. Suddenly that would become their ally and then they would be fighting against another country. And this is obviously what uh, happened with Russia in the 20th century. Um, uh, Italy as well. There was we we, we no, one minute um, a country as our ally, the next minute they're our enemy. in between the wars, uh, the royal family here were very sympathetic towards Hitler and the Nazis. Uh, the uh, Hitler was seen as a a strong leader uh, to many conservative people in the UK. And then next thing, he's uh, he's the enemy. Um, and we saw that a lot in the 20th century. So maybe George Orwell had an eye for that. Um, he, he saw that happening, and that's why he was able to put it in his insightful book. And still, we've seen the same in our lifetimes, which Saddam Hussein was our friend, and then he was our enemy. And same with many um, of the the fascists um, like that, that we saw rise to, to power in the 20th century.
1: Right, and it extends all the way even to al-Qaeda. I mean, if you look, and Scott Horne explains this very well, at the same time Obama is killing Osama bin Laden in 2011, he's also taking the side of the Sunni jihadist extremists in Libya and then took that revolution, defeated Gaddafi, and transferred it into Syria, where it, you know, piled around with al-Qaeda in Iraq, which had since fled Iraq into Syria, and eventually broke off and became ISIS. And so we, you know, literally went from, Waging the war on terror against Osama bin Laden to taking the side of his followers in Libya and then Syria and then spread into Iraq. And so, you know, it, it just seems, you know, so clear once you kind of understand that, hey, maybe they we're not trying to win the wars. Then it made sense as to why something like this would happen.
2: Yes, because these wars could go on for eternity. The war, the Cold War could have gone on for eternity, so can the Israel-Palestine conflict, so can the war on terror. Terror is an abstract concept. There's always going to be another person that you can call a terrorist. And the sad irony of all this is that at the end of the Cold War, we had basically run out of enemies. The Soviet threat, even if some people, like even Rothbard believed that the Soviet threat was trumped up that it wasn't as big as we were told in fact the Soviet Union almost starved to death and if not from foreign aid from capitalist countries the regime could have collapsed and uh, if you understand Mises if you understand uh, Hayek the calculate the socialist calculation problem if you don't please look it up on YouTube socialist calculation problem Really great lectures on there by Joe Salerno to explain it. And um, you understand that you can't centrally plan an economy because no one has the information to do it. Left to its own devices, communist countries will collapse. And um, their economies will collapse. Perhaps not without bloodshed, but it, but it's bound to happen because you can't. Um, you can't. You, no one has the information to centrally plan an economy. Now, after the Soviet threat was extinguished Uh, when the Berlin Wall fell down. We were basically at peace with every world power of any significance. And we were on friendly terms with our neighbors, both here and in the USA. So that was a golden opportunity to get back to first principles. America could have returned to the vision of the Founding Fathers. Um, You know, the Constitution, limited powers, even uh, well, Bill, H- Bill Buckley, um, one of the the fathers of the of the conservative interventionist movement, he believed that a big state was needed at home in order to defeat communism. Even though he was meant to be a conservative, he said, "Yes, and we as conservatives we want small government, but we are fighting the Soviet Union, so we need a big government." in that respect, he destroyed the, the conservative movement because he was a thought leader, at least the non-interventionist um, form of conservatism. Now, even if you take his philosophy to heart, the end of the Cold War was a perfect time to get back to freedom, uh, to to scale. But, but, of course, the powers that be did not seek to be powerless. There's a whole bunch of arms manufacturers who benefit from ser- selling arms And there's a whole bunch of people who love being part of the omnipotent state. So we fought war after war. We went around picking fights. NATO was created in a way to um, ensure that if the if the Russians struck a nuclear strike, that it would fall in Europe rather than in America. I mean, they used to run NATO exercises where countries like Germany, like, would just Drop out of the exercise and say, look, we're not even running this exercise. This is ridiculous. You Americans are basically trying to get us nuked in this, in that, that, that's your strategy. When the Cold War was finished, NATO should have been disbanded. Instead, they went to ex-Soviet countries and tried to sign them up to NATO. So.
1: Yeah. Can all, we go in, in yeah. that direction? And, uh, you know, something that you talked about on war on Syria is a war on freedom, not war on terror. Uh, was how the situation in Serbia kind of exposed some of how the war is framed and then what comes of it. And so I was just wondering, you kind of, like, explain how, like, you found out what the truth was, but then the way the media reported it was different. And, you know, kind of what was the takeaway, not only of the British people, but what did you realize from that?
2: Uh, about the Kosovo intervention. Right. Well, the thing is, Kosovo was portrayed as – um. A hu- Actually, it's, it was the gold standard for interventionists. They're like, Slobodan Milosevic was committing a genocide, and we went in, surgically struck, so to speak, and in no time, we stopped that genocide. We did a great job, 98 to 99. And that's what people said. Uh, that, that was given as a pretext for the uh, interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq. Oh, we did a great job in Kosovo. That is not what happened. And um, we were, t- there was all these wild claims of up to a hundred thousand Albanians massacred and, and mass graves. And and that was never substantiated by any evidence at all after the fact, after being used to sell the war. And, um, you know, something like 3,500 had been killed in Kosovo. And it was mostly Serbians, not Kosovars. Most of the people who died died after the bombing. It's just like that. Um, I don't know if this is like, uh, Yet, it's like, it's like when they were, when they went in and intervened, that let, that could lead to a reaction where the government panics and starts trying to kill people and um, make up tracks, but they never found any mass graves. So, uh, there was a lot of propaganda used to sell the war. And it, it's, it's interesting that that's what I meant to say. Only after the bombing began did the Serbs actually begin expelling the Albanians. What you had there was basically a civil war where the 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 Muslim faction wanted their own country. Now, you might be for secession and so forth, but they were using um, militant means to do that. And, you know, I'm sure if here in Scotland where there's an independent movement, uh, a movement for independence, if people here started picking up guns and trying to gain that independence at gunpoint, I'm sure that there would be a response from the government that was violent, not non-violent. So it's interesting because NATO actually sat back and watched as the Kosovo Liberation Army attacked Serbian Serbian communities and burnt down churches and killed civilians, and they eventually drove the Serbs out of Kosovo. And Croatians and Jews were then driven out of Kosovo. And today, any Serbs remaining in Kosovo need to stay in armed protected compounds and there was a little bit of reporting on this but it was more like oh well you know ain't ain't payback a bitch that's what they get you know again this collectivism where some bad people on one side did some bad stuff therefore when bad people on the other side do bad stuff to the first side it's just like it's a blur of collectives there's no individual there there's no teasing out of civilian casualties to uh, from innocent victims so you know i'm not saying the 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 muslim faction there in kosovo they weren't like squeaky clean nice guys right they were engaged in terrorist activity and they had links to organized crime and, and things like that so there was a civil war going on there uh, where different people had different positions and most of the damage was done after the intervention began. If you want more, Sean Gabb, a uh, famous British libertarian, he's got some essays that were written at the time that go into more detail. Um, so I appreciate the the opportunity to mention Kosovo and I talk more about that in that video. Um, war on Syria is war on terror, not war on that is war on freedom, not war on terror. If anyone likes this conversation and wants to, wants to catch up.
1: Right. And I'll, I'll bet a lot of my listeners in the U.S. have actually seen some propaganda about this war. And they might not have even realized that there was a um, Hollywood movie. And I forget what year it came out. It came out in the 2000s. I was a child when I saw it. Called Behind wow. Enemy Lines, starring Owen Wilson and Gene Hackman, where – uh, Owen Wilson's character is like a U.S. fighter pilot who, you know, kind of goes rogue on a mission and captures all these open graves. And this is the proof, mm-hmm. the proof of the genocide happening. And the plane gets shot down and there's this whole chase as he tries to get the what, you know, that's all made up and in, in propaganda right. stuff. But it, it was just so interesting when like I first heard you talking about this. I was like, Oh, yeah, I remember that movie. I actually mm-hmm. loved it as a kid. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another
2: movie called Wag the Dog featuring Dustin Hoffman where they stage a war in order to retain the popularity of politicians. So that, that kind of shows the other side of that. But the, the really interesting thing is Tony Blair w- went to Kosovo and was celebrated by people there. And that may be one of the reasons why he was so keen to go on along with Bush and to iraq and afghanistan because oh i was such a hero in kosovo and um, so it's interesting and, and it's sad because as i said um so far i'm not i'm not really sure that we've seen any great interventions uh in the in in the latter half of the 20th century and i i just think that wars are really crude tool like if you could even if you want to intervene in something for humanitarian grounds like There's plenty of starving people in the world. Why don't you just start with, instead of saving people from uh, their own governments, find out where there's an appetite for being helped. Like, I'm not really for taxing people for this. Like, we're libertarians We you know, taxation is theft and all that. But if you're going to spend the money, you know, why do you try and spend it in the most crude, least efficient way by bombing and killing people? Like, find out where it's the easiest uh, to to help and allocate the resources efficiently, so we really need to be suspect because especially when a lot of the people who are so gung ho about war are like the most right wing, unhumanitarian people ever. And you know, don't get me wrong, I'm against foreign aid and uh, the welfare state, uh, as most libertarians are. Um, But because I think it's harmful to the poor, I really think there is a certain contingent of kind of conservative, small government minded people who so-called it's like, um, do you know what I mean? Sorry, I don't know if I can bleep on your show. Uh, Like, uh, and I I don't know, there's 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 a kind of misanthropy, a hatred of humanity or or at least a fearfulness or a, a set. Do you know what I mean? going on around some people where it's just like there's a little part of them that takes a little bit of a satisfaction and you know let's get out and show them who's boss yeah we'll show them we'll give them a big bloody nose and of course it's not a bloody nose it's people dying
1: right well you know you see the same thing at like a football game or whatever Right? Like when somebody on, you know, your team hits somebody on the other team, you know, using the word, I, yours collectively, of course. Yeah. Everybody gets really excited. And they're like, Oh yeah. And, uh, you get that same kind of mentality from war. Although in war, it's not, you know, two guys who both agree that, yeah, we want to pursue careers as football players. And, you know, there, there may be some injuries attached to that, but we're okay with it. And it's just some poor kid somewhere you know, trying to go to school and and that's the kid who gets blown up, you know what I mean? Um so it's a lot more serious than the football kind of, you know, uh collectivism. You know,
2: it's like outrageously horrible. If you're born in one of these countries it's through sheer bad luck. And we're so lucky to be born on this side of the bombs. Let's face it.
1: Well yeah, right. I mean if you look at the situation in Yemen right now, some poor kid is being born into a situation where there's a you know a pretty good chance that he's gonna starve to death, and certainly even if, you know if that child you know does make it to adulthood and lives, he's gonna witness an enormous amount of bloodshed and trauma. Yeah, he's not gonna get the nutrients he needs. His uh, mom won't get the prenatal vitamins that she needs, and you know like you know we talk about things not being fair. I, I mean, what could be more unfair than a child born to starve to death? So
2: yeah, so I mean. It comes back to this that if we want to make the world a better place, we should really be starting with trying to get our own stuff sorted here. You know, we, there's a lot, we could be a lot more free market, we could have much greater civil liberties, and those things create prosperity. We should be fighting at home or, or agitating at home uh, to move towards a free society, and people abroad will want that stuff too. I mean, they did. They're, uh, all over the world, America was looked up to and admired for their fashion, for their whatever is cool. It, if America caught a cold, uh, suddenly sneezing would be fashionable, you know. Um, and I'm sad because your country, in its conception, the country you were born in, gave the world a gift in that it, the first political document ever to The first individualist political document, it said, you have the right to your pursuit of happiness. That's a very individualist notion. And it didn't exist through history, because through history, humanity has been very collectivist. It's um, You've got a duty to your parents, you've got a duty to your state, to your feudal lord, to the monarch, whatever it is. It was all about duty. People had duties. And um, the American constitution said that identified the individual as the basic political unit. Now, they weren't ANCAPs, they weren't full-blown individualists, but they created an example. And for the first hundred years of America, I think because it was so free market, you saw the greatest growth and prosperity ever known in mankind's history. Uh, people got so much richer, so much quicker. The more we can get back to free markets and show how rich we can become and how quickly we can become rich, the better an example we would be to the world of the value in adopting free markets. And instead of shaking hands, we've been shaking fists.
1: Right. Uh So one thing I wanted to ask you while I had you on is, you know, being in the U.S., I kind of understand what the temperament of the people is for war and foreign policy. But just curious, you know, outside of the world empire, what is it like in Scotland? Does the average person support the war in Afghanistan, support the war in Iraq? Do they fear Muslim terrorism as, you know, the the great threat to them? Or, uh, you know, I guess what's the what's, you know, just the general person? If you could generalize that much, of course, think
2: Scotland is significantly what is considered left here, socialistic, um, and part of that is a dedication to being against these foreign interventions. There are those kinds of lefties, old school lefties, who are against the empire as they see it. So people here are pretty anti-war. More older people were for the war than youngsters. As the war has worn on, we're now 17 years into it, more and more of those people have seen that it was, acknowledged that it was a mistake. Um, so the anti-war appetite has increased, and it's significantly more anti-war than England was, I would say, because it's significantly more left. And the, the interesting thing is, and on civil liberties, people were more voraciously, um, for protecting them. Uh, it's interesting because obviously we had a so-called left-leaning Government in place, the Labour Party, when we went to war, whereas you had the supposed right wingers, the Republicans. So, in your country, when Bush was out of office, the anti war movement disappeared under Obama. The same didn't exactly happen here. The the anti war movement continued when we changed from a so called left leaning government to a so called right leaning government. The truth is all of the parties are too left wing and two right wing at the same time. They're too left wing on economics and they're too right wing on foreign policy and civil liberties. So um we we didn't have a regression of the anti war movement here because of a change of government. People just thought it was pointless to keep on going on about it. They got tired of talking about it. Nothing changed, so we're in a sad position. I hope that we won't be mobilized to war against Iran, but if we do, it will be very critical to see what the anti war response is and um I dare say that I might have to dedicate every fiber of my being to seeing if anything can be done to stop that intervention from happening.
1: I wanted to ask specifically uh, about the situation in Catalonia, just because I know that, you know, being a European, uh, you know, somewhat a, of a separatist movement in Scotland, is there a sympathy for the Catalonians or any support or are, you know, is there a rejection of their independence? bid?
2: I saw quite a few Catalonian activists in the streets of Scotland when it was in the news. Uh, and I guess they were, doing their agitation because Scotland's also got an independence movement. There was a referendum and the independent supporters lost 55 to 45, so not much. Um, I guess they are probably sympathetic with Catalonia. I think as libertarians, the tendency should be to lean towards federalism in smaller states. It's a complicated issue in Scotland. Because Scotland's left of England, and England kind of tempers us. So, in in terms of our economic policies, so a lot of libertarians here are against independence because they think the they'll turn Scotland into the People's State of Scotland, you know, a communist hellhole. And other libertarians are um, strongly in favor of independence. So there's a split here.
1: All right. That's, you know, really interesting. And, you know, just to get the perspective of somebody else on this. And Anthony, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciated talking to you. I think you had a lot of great insights on the war issue in general. You know, usually I'm talking about like all these, like my new details of the, you know, just general wars going on, but getting this great overview and, you know, really understanding why the wars must be opposed and, you know, how terrible they are. Not only, uh for the people that are being bombed, but also for the people, you know, who live in the countries uh doing the bombing, you know, just the average ordinary ones of us. Anthony, do you have anything you'd like to plug or where you want to send people? And, of course, uh for all those listening, I'll link to it all on the show notes page.
2: Yeah, I just want to say I think the best way to get all of my details uh, where you can contact me and also where my resources are, are to download my free book, Procrastination Annihilation, which you can get from beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash do it. And I encourage you to do that because we can always stop the wars abroad, even though we'd like to. But one thing is we can um live our own lives a little bit better. And, um yeah, I wrote a book on procrastination, On overcoming procrastination, because when I was a chronic procrastinator, I was at war with myself, and that is one war that uh, I'm. That is, this has been one big long move towards peace, including writing the book. And I I think if if, uh, even if you even if you just download it to email it to a friend, uh, download that because you'll get links to the Scottish Liberty podcast. You get links to Be Yourself and Love It podcast. My uh, personal development podcast. Oh yeah. And please jump on YouTube and listen to that podcast, War on Syria is War on Freedom, not Terror. Cause I think you'll like it. If you like foreign policy focus, which is a really great show, I think you'll really like that podcast. So thank you again, Kyle. You do a great job with this show. I love the people that you get on. You got all the facts. If anyone, if I need to know what's going on on any topic, Like, I will um, see what you've got to say about it on your show um, when it comes to foreign policy. Like, I don't feel motivated to cover um, foreign policy on Scottish Liberty podcast uh, because I know that people like you have got it covered so well. And if there was a crisis, you're definitely the kind of person that I'd love to turn to to have on our show to talk about it.
1: Well, thank you so much. I I really appreciate the kind words. And you can find this episode at foreignpolicyfocus.libsyn.com and at libertarianinstitute.org. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you, Kyle, for doing such a great show and giving the world such a service um, when it comes to moving towards a more peaceful world.